Okay, we are about a month into our study of the book of Acts. Acts, the, the book that, that follows, that traces Jesus' gospel to the ends of the earth. It's the book that gives us a picture, a narrative picture of what the power of the gospel, which is what Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, uh, what, that, what th- that gospel went on to achieve in the lives of people all throughout the world. And so we're going to be looking at the last verses of chapter 1 this morning. I'd ask that you, have a, if you have a Bible, please stand and turn to Acts chapter 1. We're going to read verses 12 through 26. This is God's word. Then they returned to Jerusalem. They is in reference to the disciples that were with Jesus in the verses just preceding this at his ascension. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture has to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language, the field was called Hecladama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Therefore, it is necessary that the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry, ministry and apostleship, rather, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. The word of the Lord. Amen. Would you raise your hands and pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, declared and decreed that there would be witnesses of your resurrection, and that the work that you started and saw to completion was not forgotten in the annals of time, buried over, covered over, 
but that it was seen and that it was declared and preached and passed down so that we might be saved, so that we sitting here right now might hear the good news of Christ and so that the Holy Spirit might soften our hearts to recognize that we need the good news of Christ and so that we might be saved and be counted amongst your family. Father, I pray that your word would go forth with power this morning, that you'd use me. Father, I pray that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations, the thoughts that are in our hearts and in our minds as we listen to your word, would they be pleasing and honoring in your sight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This is a longer passage, and I do plan to camp out on it for at least a couple of weeks. It's a fascinating section of Scripture, getting to observe what takes place in the days that lead up to Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit. We get to see what occupies the time and the attention of the disciples, and then we get to think about Judas' replacement, Matthias. What a, what a section to read. And this morning, we're going to talk and touch on many of the details that we just read through together, but I want to look at this passage through a particular lens, and I want to let you know what that lens is up front, because we're going to be dealing with it for the rest of our time together this morning. And the lens that I want us to approach this passage through is the lens of the in-between, the in-between. That's what I've titled this sermon because that's where the disciples are at. Last week, we looked at the preceding verses when Jesus was taken up into the clouds away from them. He's no longer with them, but he has not yet sent the helper that was promised. He has not yet sent the Holy Spirit. He said that when he went, he would send the helper, but he told them that they needed to wait for it. So I want to talk with you this morning I want to preach from God's word about the period between here and there, the in-between, the space of time between Christ's departure and the Holy Spirit's descent. The thing that you need to recognize and I need to recognize is that there's actually a lot of time in your life that is spent in between. Have you ever thought about that before? The idea of being in between one thing and another really um, sticks out in my mind when I think about a time 10 or 12 years ago when I was living overseas. Here, life is busy. We now have, all have smartphones. We drive wherever we want. We plug in our iPhones and we listen to podcasts or we text through voice. Um, we can do many, many things. When, you, we were, when I was in Europe, first of all, I didn't have access to a car. Second of all, Europeans a lot, walk a lot further than Americans do. So every time I had something during the course of any given day, I had to walk to the train station. Then I had to wait for the train to come. And Swiss trains are almost always on time. That's something they pride themselves on. But the Swiss say it's not as good as it used to be. So I would wait sometimes for a couple of minutes for the train to show up. And then I'd get on board the train and I'd go to whatever section of the city or the countryside that I was trying to go to. 
And I'd get off the train, and was I there? No. Oftentimes, I actually would have a much more significant walk at the other end of that destination than I did from my house to the train station. There are times where I'd get off and I'd have to walk a couple of miles, a handful of kilometers to actually reach where I was going. And I realized during that time that there's a lot of time that's given to space in between, just going from one thing to the next. The question that I want you to think about this morning is how you use those times, the in-betweens of your life. Because this is the disciples in-between, and we're going to look in a few moments at how they use it. A lot of time is given to the in-betweens. And what I want to say is that in-betweens can feel insignificant. But the truth is that how you handle the moments of just being between things is actually going to shape your life more than anything else. Think about it. Think about, think about sports. Think about an athlete that you love, that you admire. You recognize that when you think about that man or that woman and the things that you've maybe watched them do on TV in the course of your lifetime, the things that make you go, oh yeah, those are the highlights, right? Those are the buzzer beater moments that stick out in your mind. But those aren't the most significant times at all, are they? They're not. If you think those are the most significant moments of that athlete's life, you're just wrong. What they would say is it's all the time in between. It's not the, it's not the things that stick out in your mind. Or something completely different than sports. Think about money. Think about your financial state. You have a financial goal. It's way out there. Something ahead. And you want to get to it. But the truth is that it's not where you've been really that matters, at least right now, and it's not actually where you want to go. It's, it's the time in between where you've been and where you want to reach, where you are now and where you want to be. The truth is that every day, little spending, not the big purchases, not the debt you're trying to pay off, that, that is what it is. It's the everyday little things that you don't think about, the trips to the gas station, fast food, this, that, the other thing, Amazon. It's all those things that actually matter. It's all those things that actually add up impacting your life. You, you think about the big purchases you made last year. And then I want you to go and I want you to go on Amazon and survey everything that you bought that was less than $100 in the course of those 12 months. And then compare that to the big purchase, the new TV. I bet you anything, you spent a lot more on all those little purchases along the way that you didn't really think about and you've forgotten about than you did on that big TV or whatever it is for you. The truth of the matter is, is that we often buy into the idea that the most important moments of life are those big monumental decisions, those huge victories or, or the big losses, but actually the most impactful times of our life are the small, normal, typical moments and how we choose to use them. Now listen, Satan wants you to think about the big TV that you bought. He always wants you to think that, that it's the big things that matter, the big things alone. But that's actually a delusion. That's not really the way life works. If you think that it's only the big experiences that really count, then you are going to go through life both dumb and unaware of what's actually going on. You need to recognize that God has not created you to live an existence that goes from glory to glory in this life. It's simply not the case that all of life is a mountaintop experience. No, the road that Jesus calls you and I to go down 
is a path that is straight and narrow. And it does go to the tops of the mountain and it does descend into the valleys. But a lot of the time as we're walking along the road, it's not the mountain peaks. And it isn't always the valleys. A lot of the time it's just given to the straight and narrow path that leads between those sections in our lives. I remember a a few years ago, we were on vacation and my son's um, ninth or eighth birthday happened to be while we were on vacation. So on his birthday, I decided that I was going to take him on a hike. So we got up early and we started hiking. And when I think back to that time, to that morning, in that place, what I remember are the lookouts. I remember the scenic lookouts along the way. I remember being up at the t- or nearly to the top because we didn't actually get to the top top because it was a falling hazard, not because we couldn't do it. <laughs> Exposed. I remember those things. But really, those things were a very small part. A very small part. And reaching them was only, only, it only happened because we were willing to walk through mile after mile of pine-covered forest trail. That's the only way we got there. And I don't really remember those the the pine-covered trail as much as we do the overlooks. And this is often the way that life works. But we need to recognize that it's the trail the simple trail through the trees that actually leads to the, to the bigger things. And we can't uh, only value those big things without the, the process of getting there. Jesus calls us to a life of quiet, simple faithfulness. That's what Jesus calls you to. He doesn't need you to live at a mountaintop high. That is not the way that the kingdom of God is built. It's not the way that the church is built, and we need to remember that. There's many people who think it's all the things that shine, all the things that are fancy and that are impressive. That's how the church is built. That's not how the church is built. The church is built by steadfast faithfulness, simpleness in our, in our faith, in our confession, and, and just long-suffering perseverance in the ordinary life that God has called you to. In other words, if you're, uh, I'm sorry, this is the way his church is built. He wants us to be faithful in the in-between. If you're faithful then, you'll be more likely to be faithful at the top or at the bottom. The second thing I want to say after establishing that a lot of life is given to these in-between moments and the fact that they're significant to us is I want to say that the in-betweens are often hard places to be. In commenting on this particular passage of Scripture, the French pastor John Calvin asks why Christ made his disciples to go through this waiting period. Of course, he could have sent the Spirit to them straight away. That's what we talked about a few weeks ago. There was no apparent need for them to be in this time of in-between. Calvin says that Jesus' purpose in it was to exercise their patience. And then he writes that God does oftentimes drive off He gets in the car and leaves. And as it were, causes us to languish. That he might accustom us to persevere. In other words, it's often part of God's plan to put us in a spot where we are in an in-between, not here, not there, waiting. Sometimes feeling helpless. Sometimes being unsure what to do. Sometimes being unsure of what's actually being done to us. And it's often hard. It can feel like languishing at points. Perhaps 
you're not convinced. Perhaps you don't see how the in-betweens of life can be difficult. Well, think about it with me. I remember talking with a man who told me that after um, many years of building a career and building a company, he had grown that company to be successful and he was selling it off. And things were good in his life. He had a buyer. He was getting a good amount for his labor. Um, His life was successful by many measures. But he told me that after selling that, that business, instead of it getting easier, it actually got much harder, a lot harder. Why? Well, because he found himself to be in an in-between, and that in-between was a mini-crisis. He had, in a sense, just wrapped up a whole section of his life, and now he found himself in the in-between period, not here, not there, not what he was before and not really sure of what lay in his future, lied in his future. What was his purpose? What was his place? Another area of life where the difficulties of being in the in-between can be observed when? Can anyone think? Teenage years. Teenagers, you're no longer a child, but you're not an adult yet either. You can commandeer your dad's socks, but you can't smoke. What a strange place to be. God has seen fit to create this period in our lives so that that are filled with inherent challenges. You're having to learn how to relate to your parents but not live under their shadow. It's the hardship of being in between. The same idea, the same principle is at work all throughout life if you actually just think about it. Think about engagement. I don't know about how your engagement was, but Aaliyah and I, we, we, we had a, a, a rough engagement in many ways. It was a struggle. You're committed to each other, but you're not married yet. I'm not really just speaking about physically being a hardship, you know, the, not crossing physical boundaries being hard. There's a lot of ways in which being in the in-between period of being committed to somebody but not actually being married causes there to be hardships and struggles and tensions and fights. How many of you found that your fights went up significantly after you got engaged? And you wonder... Am I crazy? Like, am I making the worst mistake of my life here? No, it's the, it's the struggle of being in between. Think of the periods when you know that something could be very seriously wrong with your health. That initial test shows something, but you're unaware of what the fir- end prognosis is going to be, the end result of, of this whole cycle. In the in-between, there may or may not be things that are very wrong with you, with your body. And it's a very difficult time to wait, to not really know what's ahead in your future. Life is full of these principles at play. In-betweens can be hard also because they are times of greater temptation. Think about it from a temptation standpoint. It's no wonder that I've talked with people in the military, people that have been commanders or read of such things, and and commanders say at points that they're more afraid or worried about their soldiers when their soldiers are off at port or in the city in between shifts than when they're actually out on the field engaged in the work they're supposed to be doing. It causes the leaders sometimes to have more internal worry or consternation about what could be going on when they're not around, when they're in between shifts than when they actually are. Of course, you don't need to be away at war to experience this. It's interesting. 
In all my time talking with, with guys about dealing with their lusts, I've never had anyone tell me that the time that they are most tempted toward lustful desire is when they're pulling out roots from the garden bushes. That's just never happened. I've never had any guy say, you know, I'm really tempted when I'm spreading five cubic tons of mulch. I've never had a guy tell me that they're most tempted when they're reading books to their children or when they're playing with their their families at night in the living room or when they're doing something with their wife or when they're serving other people. When are they most tempted? When are you most tempted in this way or in any other way? Most often, it's the idle spaces of time in between all the other things that you have to do. Of course, this is true for women in your own way. Think about that. The in-betweens of our lives are important and they're often difficult, but they must not be wasted. All right? They must not be wasted. And let's now spend the remainder of our time looking at how the disciples respond to this set of circumstances they find themselves in, this in-between. First, look at your passage. Verse 12 Observe the simple obedience of the disciples upon hearing the angel's message in verse 11. In verse 11, they said, why do you look up into the sky? This Jesus who's been taken from you is going to come back in just the same way you've seen him go. And then the disciples returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Now, why did they do this? It's because... This is exactly what Jesus had told them to do. It's not a difficult question. If we looked up a few verses, we'd see in verse 4 that when Jesus gathered them together and he had had instructed them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. So, after the messengers appear and declare that Jesus had gone away and was going to return, we are told in verse 12 that the disciples then returned to Jerusalem. Because he had said, don't leave Jerusalem, but they were a little ways outside. Luke's gospel adds that they returned with joy to the city. Notice that Luke wants us to know all 11 of the remaining disciples were there. They all went back. He takes the time to actually recount every single one of their names instead of saying generally the disciples went and making us sort of have to infer who he's referring to. All of the disciples are staying in this upper room together. Now listen, this might seem like a small fact. It's certainly not an exciting detail. And it may not seem very noteworthy. I admit that it is a boringly normal detail. But while it is a small thing, it is simple, unquestioning obedience to what Jesus had told them. This is how they fill the in-between. Simple, unquestioning, joy-filled obedience to what Jesus had instructed. The boringly normal nature of what the disciples do at this point is instructive to you. All throughout the Bible, there are examples of men and women who fail to do the boringly normal thing that they had been told to do. You think about King Saul. What was King Saul told to do? He was told, one of the things he was told to do was to wait 
for the prophet Samuel. And he waited for a little while. And then his nerves got the best of him. And he decided that he wasn't going to wait any longer. God told Lot that he was to flee from Sodom because it was going to be destroyed. And he also told Lot and Lot's wife not to look back at the city. Is that a hard thing not to do? She couldn't do it. She failed to do the very simple, boringly normal thing of just looking ahead and walking. Jesus told some of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, to wait and to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. How hard is it to wait and to pray? They all failed. Just because something is simple and straightforward does not mean that it will be easy for you to do. Don't underestimate, don't underestimate the sinfulness, the weakness that is inherent in our own hearts. What seems to be a side detail of Luke's narrative in Acts is actually very helpful of instructing us in our lives. The disciples filled this in-between time with obedience to Jesus Christ. This was not only done in deed alone, but again, if we read about this time period in Luke's gospel, not in Acts, but in the gospel of Luke, we see that they did so with joy. They aren't obeying just in deed, but they're obeying from the heart. They joyfully obeyed. Can the same be said of you? You say, Nathan, what a boring point in a sermon. Can the same thing be said of you, though? Can you joyfully, humbly, simply just obey the things that Jesus has told you to do? And until we reach the point where we can say, I don't know if we'll ever reach the point where we can say, yes, Lord, let's put our minds to doing it. Isn't boringly normal, cheerful obedience the goal? Isn't that what, parents, isn't that what you want from your children? Imagine that you had a son or daughter, and imagine that that son or daughter is incredibly warm and affectionate toward you. They write you letters, and they tell you what a great father or mother you've been. They love you. They thank you for the things that you do for them. They're affectionate. They're also productive. They seek to be helpful. They pick up their junk around the house, and they don't just pick up their junk. They pick up your junk. They put it away for you. Imagine that. They do the things that you ask them to do and more. They go above and beyond your expectation. Sounds wonderful. But now imagine that I told you that this son or daughter that I've described actually only does those things a couple of times a month. And they do them a couple of times a month. But in the in-between, all the other times, they seem to get up on the wrong side of the bed. They are not thoughtful. They aren't soft-hearted. They don't do what you've asked them to do. Which of you would want this sort of child? How many of you would want the son or daughter that goes way above and beyond? Every once in a while, those mountaintop highs, those big things in life, but for the most part, fails in doing the simple, ordinary things that you ask them to do. None of us would want that in our children. But do we approach God this way? 
We're going to do this and that. We've got big plans. We're going to accomplish major victories. We're going to build the kingdom of God. On and on with various aspirations without any traction on the ground. You need to have traction. God does not want your grand obedience without your mundane obedience. God does not want your mountaintop experience without your daily plodding down the straight and narrow path, just the simple work of doing what he has said and finding joy in it. God does not want your impressive feats. He wants simple, joyful obedience. He's the one with the impressive feats. Remember that. He provides those. He just wants you to follow after him. Recently, I was talking with a young man who is describing what he sensed God wanted for his life. And one of the things that he really was wanting was he wanted to travel the world and he wanted to find maybe a place like, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly. He never told me where he wanted to go. But he wanted to go to a place where Christianity was illegal, where it was outlawed, where there was real danger, where there was real risk, real threat. And he kept going on and on about this. But the problem was that he wanted to go and do all those things without doing the most simple, straightforward things that Jesus had already commanded him to do. Jesus didn't tell him personally, go to this place and do this thing. That was his burning desire. But I had to say, listen, actually, before you do any of that, before you even think about that, what you need to think about is being honest. You can't lie anymore. You have to work hard and hold a job actually. Before you think about buying a plane ticket, you just have to go, to go to worship, go to church, read your Bible consistently, not be a liar, work hard, and think about other people more than you think about yourself. Those, those are the things that actually God wants for you. It's really hard for him to grasp that because he had this vision of glory in his future. He didn't want to bother with all the simple stuff. He wanted to reach up there. That's not the way it works. It's easy for us to be like this guy, though. We look to the grand things because the truth is that we don't want to do the hard work of doing all the small things consistently. Isn't that the truth of the matter? We always want to look ahead to the big, pretty, shiny thing because we don't want to think about the simple thing that lays at our feet. It's easy to rally occasionally to speak of grand aspirations and goals. It's much harder to commit to simple obedience, joy-filled obedience. But this is exactly what the disciples do in our passage. This is the example that they give to us. It is the passive instruction that their actions provide for us in the word of God. When they're in the in-between, they are obedient to what they're told. Can the same be said of you? The second thing is to observe that the disciples were committed to seeking Christ. Look at verse 14. It says this. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Have you ever been with somebody and after a, a, a portion of time, you have to leave, but once you leave, you like call them and talk with them again? Has that happened to any of you? Yeah, okay. I'm glad to see a couple of people have been in love before. I remember when I met Aaliyah, we would talk on campus, and then I'd come home, and I'd chat with her like we hadn't talked enough. 
This is what the disciples are doing. No sooner has Jesus left than they go to a room and they gather together and they, let me read it again, were continually devoting themselves to prayer. They remember that Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in your midst, in Matthew 18. And they seek God. They don't just throw up a prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the work you've done and the things you've called us to do. I pray that you would send the Holy Spirit quickly to us. In your name, amen. Ah, so what's, what game's on? What's going on this afternoon? I don't know. Luke describes what is happening as unified, continued prayer. The space of time between Jesus leaving and the Holy Spirit coming on Pentecost was 10 days. Now, they didn't know how long they were going to wait, but looking back, we know it was 10 days. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before Jesus was betrayed, he had told some of his disciples to wait and pray, and they had faltered. They had grown weary. I already mentioned this. They'd succumbed to sleep. But now things are different. Here we can see an example of Jesus' friends seeking him earnestly and with devotion. They may not have had Christ with them physically anymore, and they may not have yet received the gift of the Holy Spirit, but they're going to seek him as they know how. You recognize that. They are seeking fellowship with God to the best of their ability. This is how they fill the time in between. Again, could the same be said of you? And it strikes me at this point that we are all very guilty. The Apostle Paul says that we are to rejoice always and pray without ceasing, and we almost never seriously consider those instructions without rationalizing about why praying always isn't logical or isn't actually God's will for us because we have a job to hold down, we have to provide, and we have this and that and the other responsibility. We rationalize these things away. <clears throat> and yet, all the while, we pray so little and we worry so much. The disciples remembered, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. So they go to a room and they commit to praying and they pray for days on end, devotionally. With, with everything that they are. That's the thing that they want. They want to be with Christ. Can the same be said of you? We pray so little, yet we spend so much time in the thing, I'm, I am guilty as you are. I've spent so much time in the in-betweens doing what? Staring at our phones, staring at screens, Wasting time. I read recently that as of April of 2022, which is over a year ago, the average American, or just a, a wide survey, uh, spends four and a half hours of day on non-voice phone activities, screen time. Now, if you extend that to TVs and computers, that, that hour number goes way up. We read so little of God's truth, and yet we so quickly want to whet our appetites, satisfy our appetites with the things that surround us. The disciples spend the in-between seeking God. 
Seek God. Seek him. Give yourself to the pursuit of God. You think, you think if you spent four and a half hours a day reading and meditating after a month or a year, how would your life look different? And I'm not trying to be aspirational right now. I'm just saying you, you don't think those little times add up to much. You're dead wrong. The data that if you want to, you dare to open up your phone and, and open up the, the screen time, it will confront you and you'll have to re- wrestle with that. That's why I ne- turned that notification off. <clears throat> if you repurpose the in-between time that you have during your day, rather than seeking your own gratification, rather than scrolling on your phone, to other things, seeking the Lord, I guarantee you, you would be much happier and you would be filled with the power of Christ. Don't drink from empty cisterns. Don't settle for the junk of the world. Fan the flames of your love for Christ and seek him, speak to him. And when you're done, think about the next time you'll be able to talk with him. Anticipate it. If I felt that way about my wife, should I not feel it about the Lord? Shouldn't you? So the first thing is is that they obey simply. The second is that they seek God simply. And then briefly here at the end, I want to say the third thing they did is that they did what they could. Now what do I mean by that? We're going to deal with the passage about Matthias next week. But what I want to say is that we are told that they did three things in the course of the 10 days between Jesus' ascension and Pentecost. The first was the just obeying, going back to Jerusalem. The second was the prayer. And the third is that the the biggest portion of this chapter, the choosing of Matthias. And the text says that Peter stood up in the midst of those people and he said, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which was foretold by the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And he goes on to quote from the Psalms saying, let his homestead be made desolate referring to Judas, and let no man dwell in it. And then he remembers another scripture. Let another man take his office. It's necessary that we choose, and so that's what the passage tells us happened. And the reason that I want to mention this is that it's important to note that even though they are in a time of waiting, it is not a time of being idle. I've already said that. They were praying, they were seeking God, but they're, they're not idle There were things that they could not do. They could not leave Jerusalem. They could not start the things that Jesus had told them would be in their future. But they did not fail to consider what God might have them do. Do you recognize that? There were things that they were told they couldn't do right now. But it didn't keep them from considering what God might have them to do. Jesus had told them to wait, so they were obeying him. But in addition to that, They knew the Psalms and they knew that something should be done. And so Peter gets up and calls their attention to an outstanding task, something that needed to still be done, choosing Judas' replacement. Of course, this is tied to the first point. This is part of obedience. I'm not trying to make it totally stand on its own, but it does stand somewhat apart. The first point about obeying Jesus and going back to Jerusalem is about simple obedience to what they had been specifically told to do. This point is about doing what you know you can do and should do. 
Peter was not specifically instructed in any divine vision to appoint another disciple or an apostle. But what we observe is that he's aware of what the Bible said and he was desirous to take initiative to live it out. And the point here is that I want to encourage you to do what you can. There are those of you here who feel as though or maybe at a certain spot in life where you you can't necessarily do the thing in your mind that you want to do. I think we're all at points in those positions. That might be part of buying into that lie that the thing Jesus wants for you is the big grand thing that lays way out in the future. But you know what you can do? You can do the thing that's put in your lap. And I want to encourage you to, to do what you're able to do. Peter is there praying, thinking, what? The scripture says something. It says, let another take his place. We, we could do that. And so you know what? They do it. You should live this way. I should live this way. Jesus doesn't need super disciples. He needs faithful disciples. I started by saying that this passage is an in-between in the life of the, the disciples. Furthermore, I said that there's great significance to these in-between moments in our life, that they are not throwaway moments, that they're not moments to be wasted. The disciples might just be waiting, but they're not only waiting. They're also these in-between moments are also times that are difficult for one reason or another. We learn something about the character and the heart of the disciples by watching their simple obedience, their simple devotion, their simple desire to do what they can do to obey the word of God and to give glory to God in this time. There's nothing extraordinary about this passage. But what we see here What we observe are the ingredients to a life that God will use for his purposes in his own time. We want to be these kind of people. We want to be a church like this. It's important that we use the time that God gives us faithfully. It doesn't need to be extravagant. It doesn't need to be showy or flashy, the things you're doing, the things you're giving yourself to. We are to give ourselves to simple and faithful and consistent and sincere following of Christ. That's what he wants from you. Are you willing to give that to him? Let's pray.